Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome to a guest episode by Gavin Whitehead from the Art of Crime podcast where history, art and true crime come together. Great combination. I hope you enjoy this presentation, shall we say, just to be historical. And if you like what you hear, do go and check Gavin out on a podcatcher near you or at artofcrimepodcast.com. That's artofcrimepodcast.com. And now onwards with the Bermondsey Horror. I'm Gavin Whitehead, and I'm thrilled to present this special episode of the History of England podcast. In a past life, I was a theater historian who specialized in 19th century English drama. In 2022, I started The Art of Crime, a history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. Today's episode should give you a sense of what The Art of Crime has to offer, and I hope you enjoy. On with the show. Charles Dickens strolled into Horsemonger Lane at about midnight and found that a crowd had already gathered in front of the jail. It was November 13th, 1849, and scores of Londoners had come out to watch a morbid form of popular entertainment, a public execution. After daybreak that morning, not one but two convicted murderers would hang. At first, Dickens had waffled on whether to come at all. He opposed the death penalty and shuddered at the memory of viewing a hanging nine years earlier. But then, two days ago, on November 11th, he caved in and made arrangements to attend. The execution would take place on the rooftop gallows of Horsemonger Lane Jail in South London, and thousands of onlookers were expected to turn out. The overwhelming majority would cram together on the street, shoulder to shoulder, craning their necks so they could see the action overhead. Better off sightseers could watch in greater comfort. 
For a nominal fee, they could rent seats and houses and businesses across the road from the jail. Dickens went with this option, splitting the cost with four friends. As he explained in a letter to one of them, John Leach, a staff cartoonist for the satirical magazine Punch, quote, We have taken the whole of the roof and the back kitchen for the extremely moderate sum of ten guineas, or two guineas each, unquote. After roaming the streets and popping into a gin palace to take the social temperature of the neighborhood, Dickens settled down at his cushiony observation post, gazing on the fray from above. As the hours ticked by, a stream of humanity flooded Horsemonger Lane. Merriment prevailed. Boys and girls not yet in their teens hooted, hollered, laughed, whistled, and sang. As the first rays of dawn crept over the horizon, however, thieves and ruffians joined the party, picking pockets and picking fights at regular intervals. Women fainted and were carried away, their dresses in disorder. Police barked orders trying to keep the peace. Meanwhile, gentlemen smoked cigars and sipped champagne in the Winter Terrace pub across from the prison, equipped with opera glasses for optimal viewing. In total, an estimated 30,000 spectators flocked to the jail. Finally, daybreak. All eyes turned to the gallows on the roof. From the jail emerged the stars of the show, George and Maria Manning, the husband and wife convicted of murdering a guest in their home. Since their much-discussed trial at the Old Bailey, London-storied criminal court, Maria had overshadowed her husband, feared and revered as the modern incarnation of Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. One of Dickens' companions, writer John Forster, recorded Maria's last moments in a breathless letter to a friend. She was beautifully dressed, the superfan lathers italicizing those last two words, every part of her noble figure finely and fully expressed. Maria had always dressed to kill, and today she had selected a black satin gown with a spotless white collar and matching gloves, as well as a dark veil. Beyond her wardrobe, Maria's self-possession also awed Forster. According to him, she mounted the gallows, quote, with a step as firm as if she had been walking to a feast, unquote. When the hangman tightened the rope around her neck, she, quote, stood as steadily as the scaffold itself, unquote. Finally, the Mannings dropped and dangled for all to see. In by far the creepiest passage of his letter, Forster gushes about Maria's beauty in death, thrown into relief by her husband's hideous corpse. Quote, the wretch beside her was a filthy, shapeless scarecrow. She had lost nothing of her gentle aspect, unquote. Reflecting on the hot and bothered rapture that Maria had induced in him, Forster concludes, this is heroin worship, I think. Whereas Forster only had eyes for Mrs. Manning, Dickens kept his eye on the crowd, and he wasn't worshiping anybody. After the execution, he marched home and fired off a letter to the editor of the Times of London, in which he fiercely condemned the levity of the crowd. Quote, when the sun rose brightly, as it did, it gilded thousands upon thousands of upturned faces so inexpressibly odious in their brutal mirth or callousness that a man had cause to feel ashamed of the shape he wore and to shrink from himself as if fashioned in the image of the devil, unquote. Dickens was so disgusted by the barbarizing effect of the scene that he called for the immediate abolition of public executions, advocating that hangings take place within the walls of the prison instead. Though impressed by the energy of Dickens' writing, the editor scoffed at this proposal, primarily in the name of transparency and accountability. 
If condemned men and women were not executed in public, the editors argued, quote, the mass of the people would never be sure that great offenders were really executed or that the humbler class of criminals were not executed in greater numbers than the state chose to confess, unquote. The editors further questioned whether the crowd's exuberance was truly indicative of degraded moral character. Dickens' letter and the editor's response ignited a firestorm. Both the novelist and the Times were inundated with impassioned missives about their analysis, some agreeing, others disagreeing. Quite unexpectedly, the Manning's execution had generated the most heated debate over the ethics of capital punishment in years. The case of the Mannings remained a lightning rod well after their hanging, thanks in part to one of the British capital's most renowned showwomen, Madame Tussaud. Her wax museum housed an exhibit called the Chamber of Horrors, in which patrons gawked at waxen statues of notorious murderers. George and Maria Manning would be the latest inductees into this hall of infamy. Before Tussaud could unveil her handiwork, however, she needed the cooperation of another local celebrity, state-appointed hangman William Calcraft. Shortly after ushering the Mannings into the afterlife, Calcraft packed up the married couple's last effects and met with a representative from Tussauds. The institution appears to have paid him the handsome sum of 100 pounds for the clothing the Mannings had worn in their final days, including one of Maria's black satin dresses. Tussauds would dress the criminal's likenesses in these fairy garments. She had made plenty of similar purchases before, but this acquisition would meet with perhaps the fiercest blowback from the press she had ever experienced. Victorians were just as crazy about true crime as we are. Playwrights wrote melodramas culminating in faithful reenactments of real-life homicides. One even featured the actual horse-drawn carriage in which a murderer shot his victim. Other theater professionals staged puppet plays recreating sensational slayings in fairground booths. So-called murder tourists visited crime scenes and sometimes left with souvenirs in hand, blood-stained shrubbery to give an example. Biographers churned out voluminous, heavily fictionalized accounts of the lives and crimes of celebrated murderers. Museum-goers flooded the waxworks whenever a new statue of the assassin du jour debuted. By the mid-19th century then, true crime already encompassed multiple media. And if you want to know more, I highly recommend the book The Invention of Murder by Judith Flanders. Much as we do nowadays, however, Victorians argued about the ethics of consuming true crime as entertainment. Moralists raised a number of objections, but today I want to zero in on just one. For some critics, true crime fanatics glorified criminals, even treating them like star performers putting on a show both at court and on the scaffold. Objectors also faulted entertainment venues like the Chamber of Horrors because they cashed in on the public obsession with notorious killers. The case of Maria Manning neatly illustrates these points. Today, we'll hear the story of how the Manning's crime captivated Britain, how Maria attained near-celebrity status as a modern Lady Macbeth, and how Madame Tussaud got swept up in the controversy swirling around the trial and execution of the married couple. This is The Art of Crime, and I'm your host, Gavin Whitehead. Welcome to a special episode of the History of England podcast, Madame Tussaud, Maria Manning, and the True Crime Controversy of 1849.
Before she became London's latest Lady Macbeth, Maria Manning had worked as a lady's maid. Born Marie de Roux in 1821, she grew up in Geneva, and by the age of 22, she had bid farewell to Switzerland and immigrated to England. There, she found employment in the service of Lady Jane Polk. As a lady's maid, Maria stood toward the top of the pecking order in the household staff. Her duties included helping her mistress dress in the morning, pitching in with hair and makeup, and keeping her bedroom in order. Since Maria worked for families with fat wallets and fancy titles, she would have handled and admired the period's most fashionable silks and slippers. By all appearances, Maria performed to her employer's satisfaction. After Lady Polk passed away in January 1846, Maria had no trouble securing a position in an even swankier household, that of Lady Evelyn Blantyre, daughter of the Duchess of Sutherland. This job entitled Maria to a bed in the palatial Stafford House in London. Presiding over the residence was Lady Evelyn's mother, mistress of the robes to Queen Victoria. Because of the Duchess's social status, Stafford House attracted luminaries in the literary and artistic communities along with other notables. It even played host to Victoria herself. When the monarch first entered the property's magnificent great hall, she reportedly quipped, I have come from my house to your palace. By her mid-twenties, Maria was ready to marry, and she had much to make her a desirable bride. It never hurts to be easy on the eyes, and she certainly was. Five foot seven, pleasingly stout, with long dark hair and a fresh complexion, blemished only by a scar that stretched from the bottom of her right cheek to her neck. Maria was also known to dress sharply and favored black satin gowns. Finally, her years of waiting on ladies endowed her with an aura of respectability. In time, she won the affections of two admirers. The first was a man named Patrick O'Connor, whose murder would ultimately send her to the gibbet. It's unclear when and under what circumstances Maria met O'Connor, but the meeting blossomed into a years-long love affair. On the face of it, O'Connor may not have seemed an ideal mate. About 20 years Maria senior, the Irish-born O'Connor was tall and thick-set, with a mouthful of false teeth and, quote, an enormous angular jaw that protruded as dramatically as Dick Tracy's, unquote, according to Albert Borowitz, a true crime historian who wrote a comprehensive and often humorous book about this case titled The Woman Who Murdered Black Satin. What O'Connor lacked in youthful vigor, he made up for in income. A customs officer who dabbled in money lending, he kept comfortable lodgings in London. As Maria may or may not have known, her beau had also filled his coffers by illicit means, engaging in usury, fraud, and the sale of smuggled tobacco. His post at the customs office facilitated this last offense. We have little insight into what attracted O'Connor to Maria. She certainly charmed him with her Swiss accent, which sounded to him like the pronunciation of Madame Celeste, a French actress and dancer of international repute. Less endearing were Maria's expectations of marriage. O'Connor would have sooner worn a noose around his neck than a ring around his finger. His friends later testified that he had shown them letters from Maria with lines to this effect. Of what good is it to continue our correspondence? You never speak of marriage. Still, she stuck around. Intersuitor number two, George Manning, a guard who worked for the Great Western Railway. Maria's first mistress, Lady Jane Polk, rode that line on the regular, and it's probable that Maria first met George while accompanying her employer. Though closer in age to Maria than O'Connor, he wasn't anybody's idea of a heartthrob. George had a, quote, bloated face, unquote, in the words of a not-super-flattering police description, and a backbone of rubber. Those who knew him described him as weak-willed and feckless. 
Maria soon found herself one of three points on a love triangle, a geometric arrangement that suited her well enough, at least for a while. When George started courting her, she could have dumped O'Connor, but nope, she kept right on seeing him. In fact, after transferring to the service of Lady Blantyre, Maria received visits from both O'Connor and George at Stafford House, even introducing the two to each other. According to Borowitz, quote, they shook hands but would never be friends, unquote. Finally, George did what O'Connor appeared unable to. He popped the question. Maria accepted, and the two took their wedding vows at St. James's Church, Piccadilly, on May 27, 1847. Despite getting hitched, Maria continued to visit O'Connor, often unaccompanied, though sometimes dragging her husband along. Maria's married life kicked off with a nasty surprise. George lost his job, perhaps because of criminal activity. Over the course of a year, thieves had plundered 4,000 pounds worth of gold bullion from a train that George was supposed to have guarded. Though perhaps lacking the evidence to prove it in court, his employers strongly suspected that George had acted as an accomplice, making it the right time for him to tender his resignation. Abruptly in need of another source of income, the Mannings packed their bags and moved to Taunton, Somerset, where George ran an inn and ran it straight into bankruptcy. By 1849, the Mannings had moved back to London, taking up residence in a two-story villa with a walled back garden at 3 Miniver Place in the neighborhood of Bermondsey. Life in this decidedly working-class district was both unpleasant and precarious. Bermondsey stood on the southern side of the Thames, a stone's throw from London Bridge. For more than 150 years, it had served as the center of the metropolis's leather trade, a notoriously smelly industry. Sanitation was poor, and parts of Bermondsey dipped below the waterline. One filthy stretch bore the name of Jacob's Island because it was surrounded by ditches that filled during high tide. Novelist Charles Kingsley visited Jacob's Island and came away horrified by what he witnessed. Quote, People having no water to drink, hundreds of them, but the water of the common sewer, which stagnated full of dead fish, cats, and dogs under their windows. Unquote. These conditions were ideal for the thriving of infectious diseases, and in 1849, a virulent strain of cholera ravaged the British capital in general and Bermondsey in particular. By September, the plague had claimed a staggering 10,142 lives across London, and with 591 of its residents dead, Bermondsey suffered the city's second-highest mortality rate. At the height of the epidemic, the sun rose and set on an endless funeral procession. The Illustrated London News reported of Bermondsey, quote, All day long was the sullen bell tolling. From morning to night, it scarcely ceased a moment. For as soon as it had rung the knell for another departed spirit, there was a fresh funeral at the churchyard gate, and again that ding-dong pealed mournfully through the sad and sultry atmosphere, unquote. As the death toll climbed, the Manning's marriage disintegrated. Money was scarce, and they often quarreled. One account claimed that Maria even threatened George with a knife, and Maria is said to have left her husband more than once, only to return. On these and other trying occasions, the miserable wife sought comfort in O'Connor's company. As a lady's maid, Maria had tasted the high life. Now, she could hardly have sunk lower. She was married to a deadbeat and surrounded by death in pestilential Bermondsey. In the late summer of 1849, she was prepared to do whatever necessary to improve her situation. It was Friday, August 17, 1849, and nobody had seen Patrick O'Connor for eight days. 
on August 9th, Maria Manning invited O'Connor to dine with her and George at their home. That night, O'Connor bumped into friends on London Bridge and told them he was headed to Three Men of Her Place, even producing a written invitation from Maria. The next day, his cousin and co-worker, William Flynn, started to worry after Patrick missed his shift at the London docks. Later that week, accompanied by a policeman, Flynn made inquiries concerning Patrick's visit to the Manning residence. Maria behaved oddly throughout the interview, denying that O'Connor had come to dinner that evening, and at one point moaning in melodramatic fashion, Poor O'Connor, he was the best friend I had in London. That sounded ominous and no less fishy to Flynn, as if Maria knew something horrible had befallen him. The mystery grew fishier on the afternoon of Monday, August 12th, when neighbors spotted Maria loading a white trunk full of luggage onto a cab and driving off. By Tuesday, three men of her place stood unoccupied. Maria had evidently skipped town, and nobody could say what had become of George. On Friday, Constables Henry Barnes and James Barton went to the Manning's home armed with shovels. Dreading what their search might bring to light, the officers went around back to the garden. When their efforts unearthed nothing but soil, they made their way back to the front entrance and let themselves in. After scouring the ground floor, they descended to the basement. The pair passed through the first of two kitchens, noticing nothing out of the ordinary, and proceeded to the second. Barnes immediately had a bad feeling about this one. Outfitted with an iron-barred window that looked out onto the garden, it struck him as conspicuously neat and tidy. The Mannings had scrubbed the flagstones on the floor until they were bright white. As he scanned and re-scanned the room, Barnes' eye lingered on something that had previously evaded him, a damp discoloration between two flagstones. Getting down on one knee, he poked it with his clasp knife and found it soft. Somebody had recently disturbed this flooring, and Barnes would not rest until he and his partner had taken it all up. Equipped with a crowbar and a boat hook between them, the officers wrenched up the stonework and broke the earth underneath. The stench of death stung their nostrils as they uncovered what at first appeared to be a torn white rag. Giving it a tug, Barnes realized with a sense of nauseated accomplishment what it actually was. A human toe. We found him, he declared. The police made short work of the grisly exhumation. O'Connor had met with a gruesome end. His attacker, or attackers, had shot him in the head before clubbing him with a crowbar and burying him naked beneath the kitchen floor. Combing over the victim's lodgings, they discovered that somebody had stolen valuables, including a certificate for railway shares. The Bermondsey horror, as the crime became known, shocked the metropolis. It was so unspeakable, nobody could stop talking about it. A husband and wife suspected of murder and to bury a body beneath the kitchen floor. The Mannings appalled and fascinated the public because their offense had struck two nerves. First, they had defiled the sacred institution of marriage, and second, they had converted their own home into a boneyard, an unthinkable act in an age that worshipped domesticity. With the Mannings at large, Scotland Yard would have to work at top speed if it had any hope of catching them. Maria and George had a considerable head start, and thanks to the invention of modern technologies like the railway and the steamship, the speed of travel had accelerated dramatically. All the fugitives had to do was take a train to, say, Liverpool, hop on a steamer, and they would be crossing the Atlantic in no time. 
Alternatively, they could flee to continental Europe by ferry and then by rail. Daunting as their task was, police had access to cutting-edge technologies that could aid them in the chase, chief among them the electric telegraph. Developed by Sir William Frothergill Cook and Charles Wheatstone in 1837, this device enabled blink-of-an-eye communication across great distances, allowing the Yard to alert authorities across the United Kingdom to the search for the Mannings. Still, Every minute that passed without an arrest increased the chances of the runaways reaching New York or melting into the shadows of Paris or Amsterdam. Detectives flew into high gear, bombarding port cities with wires notifying local police of the pursuit and even boarding ships to interrogate passengers with the name of Manning. These efforts, though resourceful, got them nowhere. The first breakthrough came closer to home without the aid of newfangled gadgets. One Sergeant Shaw pounded the pavement in search of the cabman who had picked up Maria when she absconded from three men of her place. From the day of her flight to the end of that week, Shaw questioned dozens of cab drivers to no avail. Then, on Monday, August 20th, he finally spoke with a cabbie named Kirk, who remembered dropping the wanted woman off at the London and Northwestern Railway Station, now Euston Station. Shaw's discoveries were swiftly relayed to Inspector John Hayes. Following up at the train station, Hayes learned that a woman answering Maria's description had boarded a locomotive for Edinburgh. In a splurge that would later scandalize the public, she had purchased a first-class ticket. Inspector Hayes hightailed it back to the yard where he fired off a wire to the Edinburgh police, apprising them of the fugitive's likely presence there. It was 2.50 p.m. on Tuesday, August 21st. Less than one hour after Hayes sent this dispatch, Scotland Yard received an amazing communication from the Edinburgh police. They already had Maria in custody. The capture came about thanks to two bankers, Mr. Hewson and Dobson. Both worked at Edinburgh's Royal Exchange. Four days prior, on Saturday, August 18th, a woman had entered the bank, introducing herself as Mrs. Smith. This Mrs. Smith had arrived in the city in the past few weeks, she claimed, in the course of their conversation. And what a lovely city. She'd had such wholesome, law-abiding fun during her stay, especially while swimming in the sea at nearby Portobello. In time, Mrs. Smith revealed what had brought her to the exchange. She had in her possession railway shares that she wished to sell, as well as three to five hundred pounds that she intended to invest in railway stock. Hewson and Dobson promised to contact their London colleagues about the prospect of selling her securities, after which Mrs. Smith handed over a certificate for the shares along with a piece of paper with her name and local address written on it. Two days later, Edinburgh's most gung-ho railway investor came back to the bank. At first making small talk with Dobson, Hewson was out of the office, she then inquired if he could return the certificate she had left on Saturday. Her mother had fallen ill in Newcastle, England, and she needed to travel there to look after her. Of course, I must pay every attention to my beloved parents, the dutiful daughter added, flashing an inappropriate, I'm obviously lying to you smile as she said so. Dobson obliged, handing back the railway shares and tearing up the receipt. Turning to leave, Mrs. Smith paused and asked offhandedly whether he could return the note with her name and address on it, too. Nothing doing. Dobson couldn't find it. Clearly disappointed, she said her goodbyes and exited the bank, leaving Dobson to puzzle over the sudden change of plans. He would find out what Mrs. Smith was up to in less than 24 hours. The next day, he and Mr. Hewson received a printed letter informing them that railway shares had been stolen in London and warning them not to deal in the aforesaid shares. 
The banker's suspicions immediately fell on Mrs. Smith. Then it hit Dobson. Tucked away somewhere in the Royal Exchange, they still had her current address. Dobson swept through the office in search of it, and this time, it turned up. He double-timed it to the police with the slip of paper in hand, telling them all about this suspicious Mrs. Smith, whose number one hobby appeared to be trafficking in stolen railway shares. About 30 minutes later, two police officers knocked on the door of Mrs. Hewart's lodging house. With the landlady's permission, they entered the room of her newest lodger and found a woman perusing a copy of the London Times inside. Mrs. Smith, I presume, one of them began after announcing their presence. Yes, she replied, looking up from the paper. Yeah, nobody was buying that. The lawman placed the unmasked Mrs. Manning under arrest and searched her rooms. They uncovered precisely what they expected. Her baggage contained O'Connor's stolen possessions. One manning down, one to go. A full week after Maria's capture on August 28th, the police received a tip from a woman who claimed to have seen George aboard a steamship destined for Jersey, an island in the English Channel. Detective Sergeant Langley booked it to the docks. By 9.30 p.m. the following Saturday, Langley had followed the fugitive to Jersey. The sergeant and a local vigilante stepped out of a carriage about 200 yards away from a picturesque cottage called Prospect House. The property belonged to Mr. and Mrs. Berteau. A few days earlier, a newcomer to Jersey had rented a large bedroom at four shillings a week, the landlady agreeing to cook his meals and wash his laundry. He called himself Jennings and made no secret of his drinking problem. He downed a bottle of brandy every single day. Yet the outsider clearly had something else to hide. He trembled all over when asked where he had come from and retreated to the back kitchen when a visitor to the Berto residence tried to make his acquaintance. Equally bizarre was his peculiar habit of pulling his felt hat over his face when he went for strolls in the Prospect House gardens, as if to avoid recognition. Soon, the townsfolk suspected his involvement in the Bermondsey horror, which they had read about in the papers. Detective Sergeant Langley had little trouble locating the outlaw. He and his companion went in through the front door of Prospect House and tiptoed upstairs, guided by the light of a candle. Fully prepared to break down the door to George's room, they were surprised to find it ajar. Crossing the threshold, Langley immediately recognized George, fast asleep in bed. Langley's sidekick sprang onto the mattress, restraining the fugitive. Jolted from slumber, George cried, Hello, what are you about? Do you mean to murder me? Then, seeing Langley, he understood. Heaving a sigh of relief, he said, Ah, Sergeant, is that you? I'm glad you are come. The hunt was over. In catching their quarry, police had beaten unfavorable odds. The suspected murderers had covered hundreds of miles between them, the one fleeing north to Edinburgh, the other south to Jersey. Gobbling up each sensational morsel tossed by the press, the public relished the cat-and-mouse detective work. That the telegraph had zapped vital leads across the country and back again only heightened the excitement. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. As the Mannings made their way through the legal system, Maria reminded the public of one of Shakespeare's most ferocious inventions, Lady Macbeth. As pretty much any critical introduction to Shakespeare's tragedy will tell you, Macbeth explores the consequences of overweening ambition. 
Near the beginning, Macbeth crosses paths with three witches, usually called the Weird Sisters, who prophesy that he will rule as King of Scotland. He's thrilled by the prospect, as is his wife, but she has misgivings. To Lady Macbeth's mind, her husband is too good-natured for his own good. He lacks the ruthlessness to make his dreams of ascending the throne a reality. In a ferocious soliloquy, Lady Macbeth entreats the powers that be, quote, unsex me here and fill me from the crown to the toe top full of direst cruelty, unquote. Simply put, Lady Macbeth's wickedness depends on a renunciation of conventional womanhood. Freshly unsexed, she hatches a plan to kill the King Duncan, a friend of the family, and pressures her spouse to carry it out. When Duncan stays at their castle as a guest, Macbeth sneaks into the monarch's bedchamber and stabs him in his sleep. Macbeth wears the crown only to be conquered and cut down in the finale. Lady Macbeth perishes mad with remorse. Maria's reputation as a modern Lady Macbeth all goes back to her lawfully wedded husband. When police cornered her in Edinburgh and reminded her that anything she said could be used against her, Maria wisely remained silent. In fact, she spoke little throughout the first phase of the legal proceedings, answering questions only as necessary. Not so with George. Almost as soon as Detective Langley dragged the boozer out of bed, he cheerfully pointed the finger at Maria. I am glad of it, he declared on hearing of her arrest. That will save my life. She is the guilty party. I am as innocent as a lamb. Over the next six weeks or so, George would change his story so often and so dramatically as to render his testimony utterly unreliable. Nonetheless, he remained steadfast in professing his own innocence and laying blame on Maria. He eventually accused her of plotting as well as committing the murder. At the time of his rude awakening on Jersey, George did not compare Maria to the Scottish villain directly, but his allegations, coupled with what was known about O'Connor's activities the night of his disappearance, encouraged the press to yoke Lady Macbeth and Mrs. Manning in its coverage. Much like King Duncan in Shakespeare's tragedy, O'Connor had visited the Mannings in what the title character calls double trust, first as a friend and then as a guest, only to be betrayed. On top of that, you had a homicidal married couple with a steely wife included. Shakespearean illusions were all but guaranteed. Given how rabid and irresponsible some of the reporting was, I'm surprised nobody threw in a few witches just to spice up the story. Early on in legal proceedings, journalists portrayed Maria as overly ambitious a la Lady Macbeth. Nobody accused her of regicide, but they saw her as desperate to live the high life, even prepared to kill for it. Maria booked a first-class ticket out of London to make her getaway remember, more than likely with the money of the murder victim. Then she had tried to sell his railway shares. Reporters saw Maria's penchant for black satin dresses as further evidence of her unabashed social climbing. Throughout the Victorian era, black satin gowns served as go-to attire for middle-class housewives, quote, denoting respectability without undue pride, unquote, in the words of fashion historian C. Willette Cunnington. Yet Maria hailed from hard-scrabble Bermondsey. In the eyes of classist commentators, she had no business running around in black satin. Reporting on one of her first public appearances, a writer for the Bradford Observer characterized her as, quote, a vulgar Lady Macbeth, absorbed in some ambition of dressing finely, unquote. In slipping on black satin, this journalist implies, Maria was masquerading as a woman above her actual station and therefore perpetrating the fashion crime equivalent of usurping a throne. 
More than just ambitious, Maria was supposedly unfeminine in ways that recalled Lady Macbeth. She revealed this part of herself at the climax of her trial. The proceedings had been ugly, part homicide trial, part domestic dispute by proxy. The Mannings were tried jointly, yet each had lined up separate lawyers. George's attorney ran with his client's accusations, holding Maria solely responsible for the slaying. In response, Maria's counsel called out George for throwing his wife under the bus, the ungallant scoundrel. After the defense and prosecution had rested, the jury withdrew and resurfaced after 45 minutes. Maria and George awaited the verdict in the dock. On the wooden ledge before them, attendants had sprinkled sprigs of rue, an herb thought to possess medical properties that prevented the spread of jail fever or typhus, which prisoners supposedly picked up at Newgate and transmitted to the public when they came to court. After the jury handed down its verdict, an air of solemnity filled the old Bailey. A clerk asked Maria if she had anything to say in response. Up to this moment, she had said little more than the bare minimum in public, and onlookers had every reason to expect the same now. How wrong they were. To the astonishment of all, Maria rose to her feet and flew into a fury, chastising everyone for a miscarriage of justice. I am not guilty of the murder of Mr. O'Connor, she roared. If I had wished to commit murder, I would not have attempted the life of the only friend I have in the world, a man who would have made me his wife in a week if I had been a widow. Needless to say, this characterization was more than a little awkward with her alive and kicking husband seated right beside her. Maria's impassioned yet eloquent tirade rattled the judge, but he and all involved were in for another jolt. He donned the black cap, customarily worn while passing the death sentence, and started to make his grim pronouncement only for Maria to cut him off. No, no, I won't stand it, she bellowed. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. There is neither law nor justice here. Soon thereafter, she stunned the assembly with a parting gesture. She picked up a handful of the rue in front of her and cast it into the courtroom, a display of pure, unadulterated contempt. This eruption struck the public as inappropriate for a woman, inviting comparisons to Lady Macbeth. Referring to this outburst, journalist Lee Hunt described Maria as, quote, unsexed, quite, unquote, almost certainly a nod to the soliloquy we talked about earlier. For many who followed the trial, Maria's Lady Macbeth-like meltdown lent credibility to George's allegations and persuaded them that she was capable of murder. In so doing, they sort of ignored the fact that Lady Macbeth never actually kills anyone in the play. Technically, she only orchestrates a murder. Anyway, for all the comparisons to the killing of King Duncan in Macbeth, a case in which the role of each perpetrator was clear as day, the world will never know who planned O'Connor's homicide or who pulled the trigger. Neither of the Mannings provided a credible account of that night. However, when it comes to the actual commission of the murder, I mean the moment the killer opened fire on O'Connor, things looked worse for George than Maria. She definitely had knowledge of the homicide after the fact and probably knew it would happen beforehand, but there was no concrete evidence tying her to the crime scene on the night of the killing. The same could not be said of George. A witness spotted him smoking his pipe while seated on the back garden wall. What's more, another witness saw Maria far from the crime scene. On the night in question, O'Connor's landlady talked to Maria at his lodgings, a 45-minute walk away from the Manning residence. 
Maria asked to speak with her tenant, and being told that he was away, she made herself comfortable and waited for about an hour and a half until finally leaving when O'Connor never showed. Based on this testimony, commentators past and present have put forward this hypothetical version of events. O'Connor failed to materialize at three men of her place at the appointed time, prompting Maria to go out looking for him. At least two or three hours passed while she went to his lodgings, waited there, and then returned. During this interval, O'Connor finally called, whereupon George killed him. When Maria came home, she discovered O'Connor already dead. This theory is plausible, though impossible to prove. Nevertheless, despite a lack of evidence placing Maria at home on the night of the homicide, Mrs. Manning's self-assertive diatribe at the Old Bailey reminded the public of Lady Macbeth, and that was all the proof many needed of her culpability. In a lengthy letter to the Sunday Times, the sender clearly accepts George's telling of events, in which Maria pulled the trigger, arguing of her, quote, Mrs. Manning, in fact, appears to have been the Lady Macbeth of the Bermondsey murder. And the violence of temper which she has since displayed and the expressions which have dropped from her abundantly show that she is well fitted to fill such a part. Few can doubt that she had complete control over her husband. In fact, she appears to be just the woman who would not permit anyone to rule her, unquote. Others agreed. Soon, images circulated depicting Maria in the act of killing O'Connor. In one engraving, featured on the Art of Crime website, Maria absurdly appears to be dressed in black satin, because what else would she have worn while committing murder? Meanwhile, George is nowhere in sight. Let's take a moment to appreciate how fascinating, if also depressing, this is. Maria's supposedly unfeminine courtroom conduct condemned her to the gallows and the popular imagination due not so much to legal as perceived Shakespearean precedent. Maria's association with Lady Macbeth made her the target of undisguised classism and misogyny. At the same time, it gave her an aura of glamour and gravitas. It was as if she were a star actress playing Lady Macbeth to perfection. There are good reasons for why observers saw her as akin to a character in a play. Much like we do in the present moment, Victorians often thought of homicide trials as theatrical entertainment. To give an example, in A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens mentions London dwellers who, quote, paid to see the play at the Old Bailey, unquote. Yet London's addiction to courtroom dramas reached a new high in 1849. Earlier that year, before the Bermondsey horror, a man named James Blomfield Rush stood trial in London for a home invasion and double homicide in Norwich. Onlookers swarmed the courtroom to watch the drama unfold in record numbers. Absurdly, this caused overcrowding, and in an effort to curtail the number of spectators, the Old Bailey started charging admission for seats in the galleries, making it more like a playhouse than ever. This new policy rubbed moralists the wrong way. Homicide trials should be solemn occasions, they insisted, not thinly-veiled commercial entertainment. The Old Bailey leadership might as well have hired vendors to sell ginger beer and oranges, the favorite concessions of 19th century playgoers. Witty as ever, Punch ran an article about the commercialization of the legal system titled Old Bailey Dramas, which was accompanied by a mock advertisement promising customers, quote, real criminals, genuine pathos, and my personal favorite, legal jokes. Check it out on the Art of Crime website. So, in some cases, the Old Bailey acted as a stage on which star criminals were born. 
Well, on top of that, Lady Macbeth ranks as one of Shakespeare's most formidable women and is therefore a star vehicle unlike any other in his corpus. Theatergoers have always bowed down to actresses who nail the part. In the mid-1800s, the name of one performer sprang to mind immediately as the Lady Macbeth to end them all, Sarah Siddons, arguably the most acclaimed British actress of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. I'm not trying to put anybody down, but few of us will ever match Siddons in terms of sheer badassery. Seriously, go have a look at Sir William Beachy's portrait, Mrs. Siddons with the Emblems of Tragedy, and tell me I'm wrong. You can check it out on the Art of Crime website. The painting shows a radiant Siddons in three-quarters profile against a gloomy background, holding a tragic mask in front of her face in one hand and a dagger in the other. Writing about her performance in the role of Lady Macbeth, 19th century drama critic William Hazlitt gave Siddons a review most actresses could only dream of. Quote, her acting was something above nature. It seemed almost as if a being of a superior order had dropped from a higher sphere to awe the world with the majesty of her appearance. Power was seated on her brow. Passion emanated from her breast as from a shrine. She was tragedy personified, unquote. Siddons's Lady Macbeth became the stuff of legend, remembered and venerated by the theater-going public decades after her death in 1831. For many, Maria's guilty verdict rant made for world-class theater, imbuing her with star power reminiscent of Siddons and other famous performers in the role of Lady Macbeth. This was deplorable in the minds of many onlookers. Satirizing how others reveled in the drama of Maria's outburst, an article in Punch ironically praised it as an all-star performance, quote, much more real, unquote, than Mrs. Warner, a well-regarded actress who happened to be playing Lady Macbeth on stage at the time. This journalist was far from alone in his disapproval. In a letter to the Liverpool Mercury, one writer describes a conversation with a friend. Quote, speaking of the convict, Mrs. Manning, my friend compares her to Lady Macbeth and says paradoxically that while her obstinacy shocks, her firmness challenges a kind of involuntary regard or respect, unquote. The writer of this letter goes on to chide his friend for celebrating a convicted criminal. Like few others had, the trial of the Mannings revealed the extent to which Victorians watched the administration of justice like a Shakespeare production. Those who applauded the key players often came in for criticism. In the weeks and months following the Mannings' trial and execution, Madame Tussaud would be subject to even harsher condemnation. By the time the Mannings gained admission to the Chamber of Horrors, Madame Tussaud was in her 89th year and operated the world's most famous wax museum. The story of how Tussaud became London's queen of crime begins in Paris with a man called Philippe Curtiou. Born in 1737, he worked as a physician and mastered the art of wax modeling as a tool for anatomical instruction. In 1765, he left his native Switzerland for Paris. About five years later, he opened a wax museum on the Boulevard de Temps, the French capital's hopping entertainment avenue, where theater professionals, musicians, magicians, and frog-eating variety performers competed for business. Blessed with entrepreneurial acumen, Curtiu expanded his collection of lifelike sculptures on a routine basis, tempting customers to come back so they could admire the new additions. 
The models on display included notables of various professions and nationalities, from the venom-pinned Voltaire to the beloved diplomat Benjamin Franklin. One of the most popular attractions was a tableau of Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and other courtiers gathered around a dinner table at Versailles, digging into Coco Vaughan or whatever classy dish they had on their plates. Curtiu dressed these and other wax sculptures in lavish costumes that were as much of a draw as the effigies themselves. In 1766, Curtiu welcomed a five-year-old girl by the name of Marie Grossholtz into his home. She soon became his apprentice and would later win renown as Madame Tussaud. Her mother had worked for Curtiu as a housekeeper when he was living in Bern, Switzerland, and he invited the two to join him in Paris one year after he moved there. Curtiu clearly cared deeply about both mother and daughter, and Tussaud called him uncle for the rest of her life. Some historians have speculated that Curtiu even fathered her. Whether through genetics or by happy accident, Tussaud possessed an inborn aptitude for modeling in wax. By 1777, aged 16, she was designing for the exhibit. Voltaire was her first sculpture. When Curtiu opened a second wax salon in the Palais Royal, he worked there while Tussaud held down the fort at the Boulevard du Temple, gaining experience in the day-to-day pragmatics of running a business. But there was a darker side to Curtiu's collection. Circa 1783, he opened an exhibit called the Caverne des Grands Voleurs, what I like to translate as the Den of Illustrious Thieves. In its early days, the den featured wax models of such notorious murderers as Antoine-Francois de Roux, executed in 1777 for poisoning an aristocratic woman as well as her son. Curtiu dabbed the sculptures with fake blood, the better to chill his customers. Both he and Tussaud witnessed the bloodshed of the French Revolution, and as it ran its course, the objects in this cabinet of morbid curiosities took on a political flavor. Among other horrors, the den displayed a scale model of the Bastille, the fortress that embodied the old regime's abuse of power, busts of guillotined revolutionaries like Maximilien Robespierre, and even a tableau of the firebrand journalist Jean-Paul Marat stabbed to death in his bath. In 1794, Curtiu passed away, leaving Tussaud in charge of the business. She only barely survived the reign of terror to assume the responsibility, or so she claims in her memoirs. Imprisoned as a royalist sympathizer, she escaped the guillotine by a hair's breadth thanks to the intervention of a family friend. By 1802, business had slowed in Paris, and Tussaud was losing patience with her no-good, gold-digging husband, Francois. That year, she traveled to London, setting up shop in the basement of the Lyceum Theater in the West End. She could not have known it when she crossed the English Channel, but she would never see Paris or her husband again. After less than 12 months in the British capital, the emigre artist hit the road. For the next 33 years, she toured Scotland, Ireland, and the English provinces, visiting at least 75 major towns along the way. These decades of trekking exemplify Tussaud's iron will and inexhaustible constitution. She was hoofing it hundreds of miles each year throughout her 40s, then her 50s, and her 60s, mostly before the advent of railway travel. In 1835, Tussaud finally settled down in London's fashionable Baker Street Bazaar. In a few short years, she was helming what historian Pamela Pilbeam calls, quote, the most successful tourist venue in the country, unquote, ably assisted by her two loyal sons, Joseph and Francis, as well as their children. There were other wax museums in London, yes, but none could match the ever-enlarging size and variety of Tussauds' wonders. Visitors could marvel at a wedding tableau of Victoria and Albert, 
individual effigies of national heroes like the Duke of Wellington, as well as unique artifacts of the Napoleonic Wars, including the very carriage Emperor Bonaparte had used while fleeing the Battle of Waterloo. In more ways than one, Tussaud also numbered among the treasures in her vault. Seated at the cash table near the front entrance, wearing spectacles and attired in what one museum goer called, quote, her veritable black silk cloak and bonnet, unquote, Tussaud personally greeted customers and took their money, from opening to closing. Near at hand was a stack of catalogs with information about the displays available for purchase. Having met her in the flesh, if only in passing, patrons could take their time admiring her in wax. A sculpture of the master modeler herself was to be found inside. At her new home base in Baker Street, Tussaud exploited the British craze for true crime as she never had before. While touring the provinces, she had exhibited the French revolutionary relics that originally filled the den of illustrious thieves. However, she seldom updated this collection. Only when she landed at the Baker Street location did she start adding likenesses of murderers making national headlines regularly. By the mid-1840s, the exhibit was known as the Chamber of Horrors, a moniker often attributed to Punch, though perhaps minted by Tussaud herself. After perusing the Hall of Kings with its royals, celebrities, and national heroes and the Napoleon collection spread across two rooms, you forked over six pence extra to tour the Chamber of Horrors. Then you entered a gloomy room. An orchestra played in the Wax Museum during business hours, and you could hear it in the distance. According to Charles Dickens, quote, the stormier and more untidy passages of the music penetrated the chamber, imbuing it with an inexpressible dreariness, unquote. In the middle of the exhibit stood the Marat tableau, along with other special installations, and death heads of French revolutionaries adorned the walls. Most of the wax statues stood to one side in a large structure called the Dock, modeled on its counterpart at the Old Bailey. The Gallery of Ghouls featured the likes of Giuseppe Fieschi, the chief conspirator in a bid to assassinate King Louis-Philippe of France in 1835, James Greenacre, the London grocer who dismembered his fiancée after she misled him about her finances in 1837, and Francois Crevoisier, the Swiss-born valet who slashed his master's throat before robbing him in 1840. Partly because the models were so accurate and partly because you could look at them up close, it felt as though you were actually in the presence of these cold-blooded killers. Yet there was a moralizing dimension to the chamber as well. In this cross between a showroom and a courtroom, the giant dock reminded patrons that the criminals inside it had gone to trial for their crimes and paid with their lives. The moral was straightforward. Remember, kids, killing people is bad. George and Maria Manning's wax statues made their debut in November 1849, almost immediately after the couple's hanging, dressed in clothing purchased from the hangman. Joining the twosome was a replica of O'Connor as he appeared in life, plus a scale model of the kitchen where his body was entombed. Tussaud always promised accuracy in her handiwork, and the Mannings were no exception. According to Douglas Gerald, a writer for Punch, she had even gone to the trial and made sketches of the defendants to work from later. Someone else who attended the proceedings certainly thought Tussaud had knocked it out of the park. A writer for the Theatrical Journal, a trade publication, visited the Wax Museum specifically to eyeball the Mannings' effigies. The journalist went with at least one companion, and the group was debating the fidelity of the sculptures when a stranger butted in. The gentleman assured them that Tussaud had delivered the goods, and he should know. He had acted as George's solicitor. Others were less impressed. A 
small yet vocal group of journalists railed against Tussaud for glamorizing these villains, Maria in particular. A writer for Art Journal sardonically names the Mannings, quote, the expected celebrities, unquote, in the Chamber of Horrors, grumbling that, quote, thrice-dyed miscreants, unquote, such as these spousal partners in crime, garnered excessive attention from the public. By far her most vociferous critic was Douglas Gerald, the reporter for Punch. The witch works in wax, he snarls of Tussaud, and destroys the living decencies. Then he provides by far the most vivid and funniest contemporary description of Maria's wax portrait. Quote, Beautifully has Madame Tussaud elevated the character of the fair destroyer of the murdered Patrick O'Connor. A lively rose blush pervades her full-blown face, and her large, ripe lip seems pouting with the first syllable of murder. And then her head is so tastefully, so touchingly enveloped, as though dressed at the jury, covered with old point lace made classic by Mrs. Siddons in Lady Macbeth. We think the artist should have put just a sprig of rue between the fingers of Maria, the now historic rue she pitched so strong at the lawyers. However, if the rue be wanting, the black satin gown is unexceptionable. There she stands in silk satin, a beauteous thing to be daily rained upon by a shower of sixpence, unquote. More fair than foul from Gerald's point of view, Maria hardly comes across as a convicted offender. In beautifying her sculpture, Tussaud had elevated her character, and Gerald describes this elevation in terms of theatrical celebrity. He even invokes the superhuman Sarah Siddons. Gerald wasn't through with Tussaud. From December 1849 to March of the following year, he waged a one-man moral crusade against her. Some of his complaints sparkle with impish lightheartedness. For example, in a holiday edition of Punch, he jokes that Tussaud has hung mistletoe over the statue and started charging three pence for a kiss, another jab at the eroticism of the wax portrait. In a particularly wild-eyed, vein-popping takedown, he charges Tussaud with, quote, a wickedness approaching high treason for hanging recently acquired portraits of King George III and Queen Caroline under the same roof as, quote, the infernal machine of Giuseppe Fieschi, the would-be assassin of the King of France, and the black satin gown of Maria Manning, unquote. In more than seven decades of plying her trade, Tussaud had never faced a more dogged detractor in the press, at least to my knowledge. The moral outrage over the Manning's execution and the public response to it had clearly bled into the reception of Maria's portrait at the museum. I wish we knew how Tussaud felt about Gerald's attacks or whether she paid them any mind at all, but there's simply no evidence whatsoever of her reaction. It's easy to imagine her shrugging them off. Plenty of customers were more than happy to pay their sixpence to look upon the Mannings and their victim in wax. Eventually, Gerald relented, and the ripples of the true crime controversy of 1849 faded. Maybe Gerald felt that he had made his point. Maybe he ran out of jokes. Maybe he came to view it as just a little absurd to crusade against a 90-year-old granny as the height of moral depravity. Or maybe he thought it disrespectful to wail on this particular punching bag, given the events of April 1850. On the 15th of that month, Tussaud passed away. Soon after her death, her sons, Joseph and Francis, cast their mother's face in white plaster, creating a death mask that survives to the present moment. A day or two later, a small group of family, friends, and servants gathered for the funeral at a Roman Catholic chapel in Chelsea. We have little information about the burial other than the cost of it, 63 pounds, 4 shillings, and 6 pence. In the words of Kate Barrage, Tussaud's biographer, quote, 
One imagines plumed horses and a sufficient display of black bombazine and somber trappings to convey just the right amount of respect, neither too ostentatious nor too frugal to put in question the family's solid middle-class propriety, unquote. Tussaud had left the world, but her waxworks would long outlive her, her children, and even her grandchildren. The brothers Tussaud inherited the family business, which continued to prosper, eventually growing into the international entertainment empire we know today. While the company no longer belongs to Marie's descendants, it still bears her name in a testament to her enduring legacy. The Chamber of Horrors remains a mainstay at the Wax Museum, constantly updated with new criminals from Dr. Crippen to Charles Manson. The Chamber enjoyed this reputation for more than 150 years until 2016, when it closed down to make way for the Sherlock Holmes experience. Due in part to the resurgent popularity of true crime, however, the Chamber reopened six years later. And Maria Manning? Needless to say, she faded from the popular memory long ago. If she has had an afterlife, though, it's as an obscure factoid in the annals of literary history. Three years after her execution, Maria inspired a fictional character, a foreign-born ladies' maid named Madame Hortense, who guns down a solicitor and tries to get away with it. This femme fatale commits her crime in one of the best-loved tales of the 19th century, written by an author who saw Maria perish with his own two eyes. The book is Bleak House, the novelist Charles Dickens. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of The Art of Crime. If you have, I also hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. In addition, you can follow The Art of Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're interested in history from all around the world, I'd recommend starting with Season 2, Assassins, which covers artists linked to assassinations, from the Roman Emperor Nero, to John Wilkes Booth, to Mexican muralist David Alfaro Siqueiros, to Japanese landscape painter Sadamichi Hirasawa. If you want more English history right away, check out Season 1, The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. It profiles six artists, including Lewis Carroll, who have been named as suspects in the Whitechapel murders of 1888. Or, if you find yourself suddenly obsessed with Madame Tussaud, you're in luck. This episode is a sneak peek at season three of The Art of Crime, which tells the story of Tussaud's life, from the heady days of the French Revolution to the height of her fame in London. Each episode is structured around a different exhibit in the Chamber of Horrors. So, if any of that piques your interest, please subscribe to The Art of Crime. And thanks again to David for featuring this episode of The Art of Crime on the History of England podcast. You've been listening to The Art of Crime, created, written, and narrated by yours truly, Gavin Whitehead. Liam Bellman Sharp edited sound and composed the score. Last but not least, a thousand thanks to research and production assistant Ken Symphonies. The Art of Crime is part of the Airwave Media Network. To find out more about their excellent programming, visit www.airwavemedia.com. If you like what you heard on The Art of Crime, please tell the world, by which I mean everyone you know, plus the occasional stranger. Also, if you can, take a moment to rate and review the podcast. It goes a long way in helping others find out about the show. Finally, all throughout history, artists have relied on the support of patrons to make their work. 
The same holds true for podcasters making shows about historical artists. So please consider making a donation at www.patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. Every bit counts and is massively appreciated. As a reminder, be sure to check out the Art of Crime website at www.artofcrimepodcast.com. It features all kinds of images relevant to the show, including maps, drawings, paintings, photographs, sheet music, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook at Art of Crime Podcast, Instagram at Art of Crime Podcast, and Twitter at Art of Crime Pod. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please don't hesitate to drop me a line at artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 